Hey, I'm Kevin from Q. This episode of the Q&A's podcast got a mother frickin' sponsor. Tactical Distributors, you're on fire. They carry all kinds of cool shit, man. I got my fancy tiger stripe summer pants here that everybody loves. I skate in those. I go to the club in those, pulling honeys all day. If I actually wore, you know, anything to go in my pool or hot tub, it'd probably be these board shorts. They're also tiger stripe. Things like these Ultima boots, the maritime boot that are awesome. I don't even know what that means. But these are summertime hunting boots, thin sole, like skate shoes. They're lightweight. They breathe. They repel the water. A cool thing about tactical distributors. All right, number one, cool motherfuckers. Number two, their return policy, simple, easy. I never know because I got like the fat feet. So this could be a 10 and a half, could be an 11. I don't know. Older two sizes. I pick one, send it back. It's no trouble. Let's get a little label, send it back. Cost me no money. Tacticaldistributors.com. Promo code, I don't know what you call it. Whatever code at the end. All right? Unpossible15. Unpossible15 gets you 15% off. Tacticaldistributors.com. Give them a look. Buddy's Danny and little Ray Ray. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's always a good time. Yeah, good time. Down in Florida. So they had some of their homies send us some stuff. So thank you to these guys. Is that Wex Gunworks? I don't have my glasses yeah. on. Yes, it is. It's a pretty cool. That's a nice. That's a that's a fitted hat, the American flag. Ooh. So that's good for us bald guys. I don't get that little circle. Mm. So you got the hair yep. mine. I get the sunburn. And a t-shirt. That's very nice. I appreciate this. And you know the first thing I noticed about this, the logo, there, there's, there's an erect penis right in the middle of the logo. <laughs> yes, there is. So I love that. So I'll be wearing that one. And then what is the, what is this called? Uh, coats is that coats? Yeah, coats of anarchy. Yeah. So okay, that's that's a strange name for an old guy like me. But um, so people always, well, I don't know if they ask you a lot. I get asked a ton about people to Cerakote, and apparently there's a lot of guys that are now trained by this, but Cerakote's done a good job marketing that whole thing. So uh, Danny, who I put a lot of trust in, yep. Ray, Ray yep. is an attorney and clearly day drinks, so uh, <laughs> also I'm down with him, but my level of trust when it comes to quality components of firearms or coatings, I'm not so sure. Um, so he sent us some old patches with a Baby Yoda, and was that the Grim Reaper? Looks like it, yeah. So pretty cool. So I know I'm getting actually sacrilege getting a, a fixed rifle coded for my next uh, trip to Africa. So I'm kind of excited about that. So I might give those guys a try. Anyway, Mike Murphy. What's going on? What's going on with you? How you feeling this morning, man? Honestly? Yeah, honestly. I'm hurting this morning. Yeah. Bruce Turd this well, morning. I'm awake, Bruce though. Turd. I'm alive. Yeah. yeah. So we did the podcast yesterday, and you went, you went and built a rifle yesterday. I did. Do you yeah. remember it? Remember parts of it? Great. Okay. Um, so what'd you think? Uh, it was great. It was great seeing the factory. It was great seeing the uh, kind of the assembly process, and then more than that, the engineers' mindset behind you know building these guns and designing them and working out problems as they go. That was interesting to see. I like to see that. Yeah, yeah. We do something similar at our place, but just uh, on the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. It it is very interesting. I mean, and I think yeah, well, you're a smart guy in general, but working with Griffin and Howe and seeing how you guys do things, we are 100 percent 
the other end of the spectrum, as you said, but it's a similar mindset. Yep. Like, what do we do to be the best? It's just a, it's just a new approach. Um, so I want to start with, if you don't mind, um, well, I don't know. We talked about uh, a little bit of your background yesterday, but your background and then Griffin and Hal, because I had, of course, heard of Griffin and Hal, but I didn't even know they were, they were s- still around because I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people and probably younger than me um, aren't necessarily in the, uh, uh, the demographic that can afford some of the products that you guys do. Right. So some amazing stuff. You know, here's the gun that you took to Africa that's a Griffin and Hal 301 mag. The thing is freaking beautiful. But you got to pay for somebody to do all that labor. Somebody's going to put time in. So uh, where did little Mike Murphy start out? Uh, grew up in Jersey. Uh, grew up in a relatively bad neighborhood. Mom was smart, got us out, yeah. you know, before things got stupid. It's like Dave Chappelle's store. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm making much money, though. Uh, yeah. Or that funny. It ain't over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, got out and then uh, went about life, hit my adult years or young adult years, went to the Marine Corps at 18. Uh, what made you pick the Marine Corps? A lot of things, man. Um I want to learn different skills that you can't learn most places, you know. Um, I don't, you know, deal with most social environments that well, so I figured this is a place to get just a way and do something completely different for me. So the podcast is very exciting for you. Very exciting for me. I'm loving it right now. (laughs) Loving it right now. Um, Well, why did you pick the Marine Corps over the Army or the Air Force, clearly, where all the great pilots are? Yeah, so Marine Corps has got a legendary history of winning gunfights, man. Just flat out smash people on the ground. Yeah. You know, and that was exciting to me. Those are facts. You know, so I decided, well, let's do that instead. Uh, Join the infantry. That was a fight, actually, growing up in an urban neighborhood. The recruiting center I went to, you don't see black guys in the infantry that often, man. And I'm telling you, no. even in 2005, even in 05, the recruiter tried to talk me out of it. He tried to talk me into an admin role. Or because you're role. a black guy? Yeah, and he is a black guy. Oh, he, he was figured, a black guy. It was that's, that's what we do thing. I was like, look, not for nothing, man. <laughs> that, that's what we do. Yeah. Like, he literally sat me down. <laughs> no, I think it, Americans. With me, and I was like. <laughs> the Americans joined the infantry. Yeah. And he had a whole speech for me about, you know, we should do something different in life. And I'm like, no. I'm signed up as an infantry guy. And then he told me. Because uh, you're a stupid kid. What are you, like 18, 19? Yeah, 18 whatever. years old, you know? So, yeah. What made it better was, you know, I flat out told him, I was like, look, either I sign this contract for 03XX or I walk out. And I know the way they work. They have quotas. Oh, yeah. So you know? I, I go next door yeah. to the Army, and we just go yeah. that route. That changes mine real fast. We got the paperwork signed. Oh. Yeah. Me being stubborn, but that's what I want in life. So Man, that's, that's great to me. If that's what you want, yeah. that's what you should try. Especially when you're that age. Like, we're all so stupid at that age yeah. and trying to make life decisions. Go in, get some discipline, learn some skills, right. see the world. I, I mean, and look where it gets you. You know, you learn some skills that lead to vocation for you. Right. It's probably more exciting than... Most are going to have going to college and doing it that way. I believe that completely. Yeah. You know, so had a pretty good turnaround when I got in. Uh, within four months out of all the schooling at the front end, is, uh, front end to go to the Marine Corps, I was in Iraq. Uh, you know, within months, we did, oh, uh, wow. because of our turnaround time, I did five deployments in six years. Whoa. Uh, yeah, we did back to back to Iraq three times, twice to Afghan. Um, yeah. Learned a lot, saw a lot, you know. Yeah, uh, some hard lessons, some good lessons. So. Oh shit! And that reshapes you a little bit, you know. Yeah. What What are What What is Um. What do you think's your biggest takeaway from that? Like, what shaped you the most to like who Mike Murphy is today? Five deployments in yeah. that part of the world during you know, I mean, oh one to two thousand eleven. That yeah. that was that was a lot of fighting. It was the guys above me and below me, man. So the leaders I had teaching me the way of the world, you know, the way things yeah. should go. Basically, teach me how to be a leader. And yeah. then the guys below me, because you learn from those guys. And at the end of the day, and I've said it time and time again, is leadership is key, and that's where the buck stops. So I don't blame guys below me for making mistakes. Did I do my job to make them do their job well? 
Yeah. That's the end of that. Okay. So that's what you mean. You learn from them. Yeah. You learn from the guys below, you learn from the guys above you. And my job is, if I'm a leader or in leadership position, to do my job so they can execute their job. Uh, that's the biggest thing I took away is being responsible for myself and then potentially other people, you know, more than gunfighting, more than shooting out well and, you know, understanding how to communicate with people. It's, it's just pure leadership, you know. Yeah. Well, that, that probably explains a, a lot of what, what um, you know, your, your hunting adventure brothers now uh, yeah, admire about you. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great attitude. Yeah, because yeah, people below you. I mean they they fuck up a lot. They crash drones. <laughs> they you know make mistakes, and we learn from it growing. Yeah. And then I realize you know I should should have had some rules about flying drones, yeah. and now we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Iraq, Afghanistan. What was yeah. uh, more challenging? Which one? Uh, probably Afghanistan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I got in the first deployment. I was with uh, attached to First Battalion, Six Marines, and we hit uh, we hit Marcher for the. Uh, for the big push. Um, mm. So that was just a challenging deployment in general. First time been in Afghanistan, the, the culture is just a little bit different. The way they see yeah. things is different. And yeah, geographical environment is yeah. tougher. The fact that they produce, you know, heroin on the front side and poppy, you know, production, you know, they have an agenda as they fight. So like, for instance, you get to like the beginning of the year and all the fighting kind of started to slow down a little bit. And then as soon as the harvest happened, it was game on. Oh really? Yeah, and it was so, so. I mean, it was clear to you in that role, even that that's what's driving a lot of the decision. Oh, yeah. yeah, you see these beautiful pink poppy fields, and then you go, "Oh yeah, it's just, it's just it is beautiful." It is until you realize what it's going to be turned into. So, right. now it was interesting, uh, interesting dynamic, and the fact they still you know work in small environments as far or live in small environments as far as their community, so they have elders and whatnot. Yeah, hard part for us is getting their elders. You know, you got to fight for yourself. We're not going to be here all the time. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, from uh, from my perspective, you know, and what you're saying from Iraq, it, it's just it's just more archaic even. Yeah. Like they're living in a tougher geographical environment. Yeah. They're more isolated. And At least that's my personal experience. It may have yeah. changed for a bunch of other guys, you know. Yeah. W- was it was it tougher, too, you're saying? Because that was like a big push in the war at that point, too. Yeah, it was a big increase around like what was it, 2010, beginning of 2010. Um so, you know, in Iraq, too, I was a little bit younger guy, so I came in in 05, so I got into, you know, 2006, 2009, yeah. and by that time, Iraq was kind of dwindling down anyway, yeah. and we were pulling out, Okay. You know, so it wasn't as kinetic as, let's say, the guys in 03, 04, 05, yeah. when, you know, it was balls of wall pretty much every day. Yeah. So So when did you leave Marine uh, Corps? Got out 2011, yeah, so in so almost exactly six years. Six years? Day. Yeah, I got out 2011. Is that where you learned to shoot? Yeah, so the base is rifle shooting, man. You know, it's, it's there's no... Yeah, they take it seriously. I think we overcomplicate things sometimes. There's some very specific rules that we follow, and we can be efficient with shooting, and then we can, you know, develop our skills from there. You know, so just the basis, the basis of marksmanship. Nothing crazy. You know, nothing really uh, complicated. No real crazy numbers going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. What, what did you did you grow up with firearms at all? Like yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, same nope, thing. A little city. bit. You know, I ran around cap guns around town, but uh, you but can still do that kind of stuff. Can't yeah, do that now. But your your dad, uncles, yeah. granddad, nobody dad, hunting mom, or doing anything. My mom grew up in a really bad part of town in a town called Camden, in Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. So guns are out. You know, knives yeah. are out. Weapons are out in general. She wasn't about that. So, so no one in your family is really in outdoors, that sort of stuff. No. Like it just wasn't when we grew up in, you know. We grew yeah. up in inner city or kind of outskirts of inner cities, but never... Not against it, just not something we knew. Yeah, just not something you did. So, so, it, so your exposure to it was absolutely the yeah. Marine Corps. All right. So then, what happens? You get out. What do you do? Get out. Like most guys, transition. That's rough. You know, you find whatever you can. Yeah. Um, you know, screwed around for a while, working random jobs, then wind up getting hooked up with a uh, marketing job. So completely on the other end of what I thought I'd be doing. You know, I'm marketing in doctors' offices every day. 
Yeah. Really? But it was a job it paid, you know. Yeah. I, like to, I think I can learn pretty fast, so I had no experience and no schooling. Uh, had some good mentors, and we wound up uh, being pretty successful pretty fast. And then I took my free time and, you know, got into the whole Lone Range game just on my own. Um, just I was curious. Yeah. You know, and it spent almost every dime I had at that point, which just making decent money, so it was all right. Yeah. And I would get out and buy new systems. And, you know, when I was doing that, I made a lot of mistakes, you know. Yeah. So anytime I'm teaching somebody or talking to them, I preach from a position of knowledge because I've made those mistakes. It's not like, no, hey, I know yeah. better because somebody told me it's better. It's like, yeah, so I messed this up a bunch of times. So you don't have to mess this up. You know, here's some information that I've, that I've done and I can share with you. Well, um, what are what are some of the biggest mistakes or takeaways that you have from that experience? Some of those big things is, you know, letting marketing completely drive, um, you know, what I'm going to purchase and use as as a shooter, you know, especially in the gun industry. Um, some marketing is legit. Some marketing is just it's big money spent to put a bunch of words out there. Yeah. And if you trick people just right, you know. Sometimes, and you don't know, and if you don't know any better, if you have no comparison, if you have nobody around you who has different experiences, you just may not find out, you know? Yeah, I mean, some of those things you don't find out till you go start pulling the trigger. Yeah. What, uh, what, what are some of the basic things? Like, uh, let's say basic things for marksmanship for long range. Like, what, what are two or three basic things that, that are mandatory for? Yeah, so have a rifle market. that is, is accurate. And I guess right now, you know, I guess around the industry, accuracy is when I'm away or better. You know, so we start there, and you can buy a lot of firearms these days that can shoot one of them away pretty much out of the box. Yep. You know, you don't have to get crazy with it right now, and then have good, clear, efficient glass. You don't have to spend double right away. You know, there's plenty of companies making the mid-range, low-range tier scopes. Yeah. As long as they dial accurate, you can see everything you need to, and nothing's falling off that, you know, optic, then you're good to go. Yeah. You can start there, and then what I tell guys that want to get into it is pick a caliber like a 308 or 6.5 Creedmoor, and shoot that until you understand what's really happening so don't just go buy the sexiest thing out there right away if you're not ready for it spend money smart i'd rather spend money on ammo than all the kit that goes into it and never actually use the gun yeah you know I you should be shooting that. shoot a barrel out of a gun and then maybe get crazy with it later on yeah go that route well okay so what happens you're doing marketing yeah and how do you end up at griffin and half uh yeah, so uh, the network, actually the Marine Corps network, which is odd, right? Because we're, you know, always Marines. There's this brotherhood that keeps going. So I'm down there in Florida. I'm doing marketing. I'm also working at a gun shop. That is interesting you say that. I know we've got probably, what, five or six guys that were in the Marine Corps at the at Q. Hmm. Yeah, I think and four or five, something like I, that. I noticed, you know, Q's getting so big now. Like, I go out of town for a week or two. I come back. I don't know everybody there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there was a new guy in assembly the other day, and I noticed – like coming down his arm out of his shirt, Marine yep. Corps tattoo. And I asked Adam the other day, I was like, what is it with in the Marine Corps? You got to get a Marine Corps tattoo on your arm. <laughs> and it is like there, yeah. there is some sort of connection that yeah. I don't quite understand, but it's real because like every one of them. Yeah. It's kind of a, a cult following, especially for the infantry. So, uh, now I'm down there hanging out. Guy walks in the gun shop. I'm talking to him. Turns out he's, uh, he's a former Marine. He currently works. Uh, so you guys, yeah, on just boyfriends right away. Yep, he works on the government side of the house. So he was actually at the time uh, he was a GRS yeah. uh, on the contract side. Um, Start talking to him, and then he basically asked the question, "Hey, man, you happy here?" And I'm like, "No, not really." <laughs> so he goes, "All right, well, send me your resume. We'll see what we can do." Uh, and I hear that, and I'm always like, "Yeah, that's what everybody says. Send me your resume." And sure enough, within two days, I get emails back from 
Uh, oh, really? Used, it's just that simple. Oh, yeah. He used to work for uh, nice Academy or Blackboard or whatever they go yeah, by yeah. these days. And he starts sending me emails saying, hey, we got some gigs coming up. Let me know. Uh, so around this time, I put that information out there, had it on standby. And then I went the marketing route instead. Um, it came up one more time. So when I moved back up to the Northeast. Because um, you were in Florida or somewhere. Yeah, I was in Florida for a little bit, kind of hanging out. Um, one of my mentors reached out, which we don't talk that much. It's actually uh, Dave Boone Benton. Um, so he was one of the team members on that uh, rooftop of Benghazi and that nonsense that okay, went down. Yeah. Um, you know, shout out to those guys for being badasses. Yeah. And uh, he goes, man, there's a spot near you in Jersey looking for a rifle instructor. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I thought he was, I thought yeah, he was, honestly, I thought he was playing with me. Yeah. In Jersey, I wouldn't have believed it. I thought he was full of shit. Uh, and then, you know, comes around and, you know, the next morning the CEO calls me. You know, Steve Palanich, like like 930 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, so this is kind of real. He's like, hey, That's man, awesome. I'm, I'm headed out of town to hunt. When I come back, let's sit you down. And even though I was still pretty skeptical, sure enough, Friday afternoon, he called me up. Hey, come up on Sunday. Let's let's sit down. That first interview was eight hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was there all the entire day. Um, and when you get there, so Griffin Howe currently operates out of Hudson Farm. So, so well, well, Did maybe you know I'll about Griffin and Howe before you got I had no idea about him. No. Yeah, because yeah, you were not yeah. a, a super old, rich white guy going <laughs> yeah, on safari. Yeah. So Griffin and Howe. Yeah. So, so you find out about him. And I'd heard about him, right. you know, and knew about it. I didn't even know it was like still a company, but I knew it was, you know, kind of an old school, fancy yeah. rifle maker. And that's about all I knew. And some of the old, rich, white guys that I know have older Griffin and Howe rifles. That's all I knew. So so what's the history of it? Because it it's freaking fascinating. Yeah. So it's about a 100-year-old company founded in uh, 1923. Uh, by a cabinet maker of all things, he's a woodworker. So you know he runs the stock. Yeah, bro. he read uh, Teddy Roosevelt's book from his big safari in Africa, <sighs> right? That kind of legendary honey went on, and he was motivated by it. So he bought an O3 Springfield. He's one of the biggest inspirations yeah. in my life. So I get it. And at the time, the need he saw was if you wanted a fine hunting rifle, sporting rifle, you're into a European gun. Yeah, I guess that's true. That Don't think about it, but there wasn't really like a true sporting gun. Jason, was there anything? Uh that you can think of then? 1920s, it would have been like a great off-the-shelf hunting rifle for an American? Off-the-shelf? No. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so you Europeans that were built for wars and guys would take maybe their gun out and go hunt with it, but it really didn't have the features you wanted. So you had sure. a European gun. So, you know, um, you know, Seymour Griffin goes, all right, how about this? I'll make a new stock, right? I'm a woodworker. So he made a sporterized stock, you know, with a Monte Carlo on it that could actually work yeah, yeah. well for hunters, right? Yeah. Um, He's kind of turning these guns out. He's working on guns here and there. And then uh, Colonel Townsend Whalen, who knew him, goes, hey, man, you need to come to a meeting. The, the 35 Whalen? Yep. So we had a big part to do with that cartridge. And okay. Colonel Townsend Whalen is a big reason why our company really exists, honestly. He sat him down with James V. Howe, who was a machinist, and they got together and said, look, you guys have something here. He worked for Frankfurt Arsenal. He goes, you guys oh, need yeah. to make this a thing. Make this gun happen. That's how. That's how so many things happen. Like, oh, my buddy can do this. I have a machine shop. Yep. <coughs> what the heck? What'd you bring? The COVID over here today? Probably. Jesus Christ, Probably. man! In my lungs. I think I got pneumonia just in this podcast. It's all the kissing yesterday. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Which nobody remembers. Mike, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, thank God for that. All right. But it is how things happen a lot. Yeah. You, you know, Magpul, which is a great, like, you know. I will say our generation, like I'm your age, but, um, you know, a company of, of this generation where it's a guy from the Marines, yep. you know, uh, Rich Fitzpatrick or whatever his name is, 
came up with the idea, you know, just basically the band on the bottom of the magazine, Magpul. That's the logo. Probably most people now don't even realize yeah. that. Like yeah. company's so yeah. old. That's lost a lot of people. And so then he knew in the in the little weirdo town of Boulder where he was, there was this industrial designer who was really smart, Mike Mabry, who who and they formed Magpul together because he could design that thing to be more than just like a bicycle inner tube with a paracord hanging off of it or whatever they were right. doing at the time. And that little Magpul started to come, you know, and, and they just started, you know, when you all have day jobs, you're doing other things, and it's like, well, hey, I would love to do this. This makes sense. I'm kind of into this hobby. I can do this, and you can do this, and you can machine some for us, and before you know it. So that's that's Griffin and Hal, too. Yeah, that's the company. You know, unfortunately, when you have one or two guys building guns, uh, <laughs> you know, you run into a big problem, and then around that time, you know, you're creeping to the phase where now your Winchester starts coming around, Springfield starts coming around, and go, all right, so let's build a more modern rifle, and look, big manufacturers are going to kind of put the small guy on the ground if they're not careful. So, uh, in the 30s, Abercrombie and Fitch at the time was one of the world's, or at least the country's uh, largest outdoor retailer, sporting yeah. clothing and booking in hunts, especially safaris. So, so not just clothes for the tweens, like Jason right. said yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so because Griffin and Hal at the time, sorry, Mike, but they're doing 03 Springfield, yeah. doing stocks, yep. doing the actions, rebarreling them, yep. just just using that great action to build something that makes sense for the commercial market or hunting. Exactly. Yeah, kind of. We talk about it with optics, Jay, a lot. It's like, you know, and you being in the Marine Corps, too, you know, there's lots of great optics for that. And, but a lot of times they have features or different things that we don't really need in a hunting environment or we need other things in a hunting scope. So there's a lot of overlap, but it's not always 100%. No. You know, they made some changes to the barrel, so they rebarrel them, uh, hood and ramp front sight, uh, protect that front sight, especially through heavy brush. Uh, three, oh, yeah, three I guess then yeah. there's not really great optics, so exactly. you're using a lot of iron sights. Yep, so three-quarter rib. Uh, leaf sights, they'd install those on. Barrel bands for your more safari-style barrel bands. So you can actually attach your sling your barrel instead of your stock, especially shooting off like traditional sticks. Uh, they might get in your way. Oh, yeah. um, so they made those changes in the course of stock. Later on came the actual side mount, which is uh, really a project for the Army. Uh, it was for the Grand Infantry Rifle, where they'd make that custom side mount, which was a quick detach. And this is back in like the mid-30s. So you're talking where companies fighting now to make a truly quick detached mount that returns to zero. These guys are making them yeah, by yeah, hand. That's that's forward thinking. Yeah, and they were serialized to the gun, so they were specific to that gun. Yeah, they probably had to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it was required. And that way, a guy could have one gun. He could shoot, you know, in heavy brush. He could shoot down animals. He can shoot long range, which at that point is probably 300 yards. Yeah, because probably at the time you think about it now, we just take optics for granted. Yep. You, you know, like magnified optics or even red dots or whatever. And we just think of irons as a backup. And, and it was totally reversed then. Like, you're going to use your irons all the time just in case you can mount uh, a magnified optic to it. Absolutely. Yeah, so they moved yeah. forward in time. Uh, and in uh, World War II, they started to produce the uh, side mount. It's like 23,000 pieces for the uh, Grand Infantry Rifle Project. Um, so we kind of had a big hand in that. After the war was done, we started building some uh, side mounts as well or some optics mounts for the Canadians, but that kind of fell flat. So, so the during ended. the war, you guys are doing stuff for the yeah. military. World War I and World War II. Uh, World War I, we were making uh, trigger parts for uh, anti-aircraft guns. Uh, huh. And then World War II, we kind of had a part to do with the uh, side mounts. And then towards the end of World War II, we started building mounts for the Canadians and the war ended. So that project just kind of came to a screeching halt. Yeah? Yeah. And then you get into the weird part again. Keep in mind now, Winchester and Springfield are still really, really ramping up. As far as when it comes to, um, you know, your hunting rifles. So all of a sudden, they have a problem where Griffin Howe, they're customizing guns for people one person at a time. 
these guys are mass producing guns. And it's just a matter we deal with now, right? You can buy a custom gun and pay four times as much. Is it worth it? Do I have that budget? Am I actually going to use that product? And that's the question you have. So it's a hard industry to be in for a company. And that's why I think the name started to lose a little bit of its uh, its power within the industry. Uh, and we had some pretty heavy hitters, some pretty famous people buying our guns at the time. Uh, the most famous that people know of, if you know the history of Griffin Howes or in the same way. Uh, yeah. And that's how we linked up. Yeah. Going to Africa, you know, when you guys came in hot in Atlanta, we barely even shook hands. Uh, we sat down on a plane on the third leg of the flight to Durban. Oh, third leg of a and flight. And you Jesus. mentioned, you know, you mentioned, hey, I you know, saw this pretty cool documentary. I'm like, Ernest Hemingway. I was like, we know that guy. Like, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I just watched all those Hemingway documentaries. Yeah. That's how it kind of got kicked yeah. off. Um, but you have other guys that are part of the company. You know, Gary Cooper, you had Dwight Eisenhower. There's a lot of people that are buying our guns. Uh, you know, Dorothy Moore, Jack O'Connor. Because you guys still have the actual log where... Oh, yeah. We have leather-bound books with literally every name we've ever sold a gun to, even nowadays with the modern guns as well. And then our historian can usually carefully... Sometimes he can backtrack guns to previous owners. So if it gets sold once or twice, he'll you know reach out kindly and say, hey, do you mind if I you know, get some information from you? That's so cool. What's that going to be worth sometime? Right, yeah, these yeah. leather-bound books that are 100 years old where Hemingway and Dwight Eisenhower and stuff, names yeah. are in it, and, you know, the details on the guns that they built and purchased that's yeah. pretty neat to see this uh it's just i mean it's true history at that point i mean nowadays yeah. a guy you know random guy like my name's in the book you know with that guy it's like it's just for some people that holds some pretty good sentimental value um so that's we, super, we appreciate super that history, interesting you know? to me yeah because some companies you know you build a gun the guns out the door you move on um yeah. so you know we still built the sporter rifles in the past we still build them today actually uh, still on those actions yeah, yeah we'll still build those actions today oh three um, actions a little hard to find good guns to start with but so the hard oh, part so you actually take yeah, you guys still take military guns yep. or surplus guns and rebarrel them and yep. build them, rebarrel, oh. restock. So usually, I, I've got. I know I've got yeah. two or three. Yeah. I should do that because yeah. I need only want. I mean, I only care about having. Yeah. I ain't trying to be reading night, so yeah. well, like I only care about having <laughs> one that I can mount my old silencers on. Oh, I should do that. That would be such a fun project. Yeah, Douglas Barrel. I don't know um, if I can afford it. But you can choose your piece of wood to start with, you know, that slab of wood. Uh, these guys basically freehand or stencil that shape on there, and they start to shape it by hand, that wood stock. That's still done today. Do, do you get to make, like, are there options in the stock? Like, oh, yeah. You, okay, you so can you do trap to, doors. You can do engraved oh, butt plates. You can do rat Jason, pads. should we do a field ethos story on this? I take one of my 03 Springfields that I've had for 30 years, and we build a gun. Yeah. What, whatever with you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about me right now. Oh, that would be so awesome. With iron sights. And, you know, yep. t- for me, I just purchased yep. those guns. Like, my guns, they're not sentimental. Like, they weren't my grandfather's or anything. I don't care. But, you know, I bought them, and they were probably like 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it would mean something to me. Of course, and then I could I could give it to Aiden or something. And your name will be custom in the book. engraving. Our, so right now the neat part is the name will be in the book with Ernest. Oh, yeah, our our stock right maker, next to him. Um, he's actually part of the stock making uh, American Guild stock maker. So he's uh, the guy Dan. He's like a second or third generation stock maker. When I tell you, you ask him a question, he just knows. I'm talking at the beginning. How long is stock gonna be? Oh, it's gonna be this many hours. He just knows it, and he'll execute it to that hour. You know, and then his younger brother, I believe his younger brother, so he's our engraver as well. So Jesus. he can do pretty much everyone by hand. Well, he's the engraver. When you see the guy work, the crazy part is he'll be like on the phone <laughs> and he'll still be engraving and he won't miss a beat. 
It's amazing. I've watched some of the engravers at SHOT Show before. Yeah. Like They bring them out and do some of the stuff. And it's just because, you know, I love art and design yeah. and all that. And that that is so fascinating. It's something that I value and pay money for. Right. And also, know, you know, I've talked about several times in the podcast, my buddy Jared Jopp on American Precision Arms. That's the current name of it. Yeah. But he also, custom rifle builder, but mm. different than you guys. Yeah. Um, but but takes defiance actions, builds the guns, and he is meticulous, and he is so OCD, it's annoying. Mm-hmm. But that is the guy you want building your gun if you can afford. You need I, that. Yeah. I bought three, and I'll show you one before, before you go, um, that are all the same. They're 16-inch Manners folding stock, uh, two are 308, and one is 6.5 Creedmoor. That's the only difference. And I can't tell a difference in the guns. Mm. And, like, he'll get a $900, you know, Manners carbon fiber folding stock. And when he inlets for the barrel, if it, if it's if you can see the difference on you know the, uh, the void of space on one side and the other, he trashes it and starts it with mm. a new one. Like it's ridiculous, and I couldn't believe how much the guns were. And um, and he's a friend of mine because I bought three at one time and it was eighteen grand and I got a discount. And this was ten or twelve years ago, but his shop was near my farm in North Georgia, and. When I went to watch him, like basically at the time, he was doing a ton of the work and the shop's grown. And so now he does one thing. He's got guys that specialize in certain aspects of the builds. And so they've become more efficient and probably, and Jared would probably say even better because now, you know, it's like he's doing the thing he's best at and he's got a guy that this is all he does. So that that makes sense. Right. Um, but when I realized, like basically, I'm buying a week of his life. Yeah, Like, he's in there. He lived in the shop at the time. He didn't even have a separate house for 15 years. He lived in the attic of the shop. Crazy son of a bitch. And, um, you know, in a week of his life wasn't, you know, 40 hours minus hour and a half lunches. It was probably 70 hours. Right. And that's what it took because he did the stock. He did the action. He did, like, everything on yeah. the gun. Uh, and they're perfect. Yeah, well, that means it takes, and I mentioned you yesterday when we were at the factory, which is, like at some point, if you want more precision, if you or better precision, if you want uh, longer lasting parts, uh, more durable gun, you're going to spend more money. Let's say on raw materials to start. You know, we still we build our lightweight mountain rifles well. It's McMillan stock that was made for us. It actually mimics our wood stocks. We use Defiance, yeah. you know, Rebel Action. Uh, it's now control round fed the one we chose. Oh, um, nice for a yeah. couple of reasons. Uh, direct mount titanium rings, things of that nature. And by the oh, time you get done with it, Defiance actions cost money. But yeah. Mendo's defines action shoot. They're great. We use yeah. proof of barrel. So you're paying for good parts to start, so your price immediately goes up, and then you are paying for somebody's time to make yeah. sure. I to mean, check threading a muzzle break to fit it to the gun. Yeah. If you yeah. want that half and way that everybody seeks, or, uh, more, or less than half and way, it takes time. Jared wanted to, I remember about seven or eight years ago, he has a very wealthy client who wanted wood stocks. And Jared's a guy who likes to challenge himself. And he, so his client like bought these pieces of wood, like six pieces of wood. And it's a guy with a lot of money. And wanted, And Jared agreed to learn to make the stocks. And he hand, you know, like carved or whatever you would say, like all those stocks, the same thing. Right. And he told me the pieces of wood that he started with, that his client paid six grand a piece for the pieces oh, yeah. of wood. Just the blank pieces. And then Jared would spend, you know, whatever it would take, two weeks making yeah. one of the stocks. It's so. like the American walnut we use in the all-American rifle. You know, the slabs start at $500. You go up to about $2,000 per slab, and you can choose whichever one you want. But some Turkish walnut, French walnut, yeah, you'll get up there in price real fast. <sighs> That's so cool. So yeah. so if I come to Griffin & Howe now, I want to build a gun. Yep. So there's options. I can start my 03 Springfield. Yep. We could go with one of the defiance-type actions like you have you brought to Africa. I can... 
pick my piece of wood off the, uh, yeah, we'll, off the thing. We'll lay them out for you. Lay them out. You and we'll wet them as well so you can see exactly what that grain looks like. Before, well, obviously, before we start cutting into it. But you get an idea for what that, how that grain flows. So yeah. Go, yeah, I like this one, but that one's a little prettier. You know, I like yeah. that one a little better. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, whatever engraving, trap doors, leather pads, orange pads, skeleton butt plates, whatever you want. Yeah, that skeleton butt plate you got right. on that is so cool. So it's, yeah, maybe we'll take a picture of it and show it, but it, it's like still around the edge and right. the inside is still the wood, the middle of it, and it's checkered. Oh, it's so beautiful. Right. That's the first thing I showed to everyone last night yeah. when you're gone. So the neat part is then we have a guy who repairs wood stocks. So like this gun got hunted pretty hard. It got banged up a little bit being out of the truck, you know, through some of that heavy stuff. It's a working gun. They can we steam. had to shoot yeah. some stuff. So for some guys that don't like it, they can steam dents back out. They can repolish the wood. You'd never know that. When I send this gun back to these guys and they actually repair the stock, you won't know the, the stock was hunted. You wouldn't be able to tell. You know, so right now it's still a bit war torn. I like the way it looks, you know, but oh uh, yeah, depends on what you like out of your gun, how you like to use them. Well, so we were in Africa and you opened that case. I was like, you know, I've been there, done that, and I was like, man, I can't believe that gun's gonna be used out here. It yeah. is, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So we have our mountain gun. You know, we have our still our classic sporter rifles. We'll build on pre-existing actions and are all American, which is a American rifle company action was modified for us a little bit, proof barrel, and then that handcrafted uh, American walnut stock. That's amazing. Yeah, custom titanium rings, titanium floor plate. Um, it's so cool you guys do all this th th this sort of old world style of manufacturing the stuff and hand fit, but the, the proof barrels, yeah. I love the proof Try some different love-hate things. Some people are like, ah, it's just not for me, and that's okay because I still have a sporter I can put you in as well, and that's up your alley. Hey, I just want I want a workhorse gun. We'll put you in a Highlander. Just a, it's a composite stock, right? We've all <laughs> been there, and then I want to try something different, you know. All right, so right now, Griffin and Hal, yep. rifles. So you can do the O3s, and you have these Defiance custom actions that you guys, custom to you, you start with. You can build guns. So so you have these different categories. You just name them. You have a Highlander or something? Yeah, Highlander's are mountain rifle, six and a half pound, you nice. know, composite stock hunting gun. We're kind of industry, and a lot of guys are in that same industry right yeah. now. Um, you know, guarantee happen way across the board for our guns. Uh, we have That's our All-American, which is your higher dollar product mostly because that stock alone is going to cost you quite a bit this and is the all-american the all-american rifle and the hand crash from that stock so again you're paying Freaking for beautiful one guy's time to sit there and hand carve the stock out and let it and all and all the good stuff and then the uh, classic sporter rifle so there's literally three different tiers you know three okay. tiers of rifle you know you can pick and choose every you want for your needs or maybe you just want a collector's piece whatever the case okay. is yeah all right so you guys do that so yep. you guys used to be part of abercrombie and fit used to be yeah so what the what did you do to I us? I don't know. I'm sorry. <coughs> I'm sorry. You might not make it out of here live. Man. Um, all right. So you guys used to be part of Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah. So you were in New York. Yep. Manhattan. Right on Park Ave. Park Ave. Yeah. Imagine that. So you guys were above Abercrombie yeah, and Fitch. Above Abercrombie. So Fitch. how did, how did it work? They're an outfitter. Yeah. And so you guys were part of Abercrombie and Fitch. At Actually the time? owned by Abercrombie and Fitch at the time, <laughs> subsidiary. Yeah. So we were. Uh, <laughs> doing the same yeah, so Abercrombie and Fitch at one point uh, bought Griffin and Hal, uh, so we we're actually under their under their you know banner. I guess that's you could so say. awesome. Yeah, yeah I, I told you I think I have an Abercrombie and Fitch catalog from like a hundred years ago that has Maxim silencers in it for sale. Yeah. yeah. So you guys are upstairs. Yeah. So um, it it's so amazing to think now how screwy America is in this way. But so you'd have movie stars and stuff yeah. who who would want to go on an African safari because you know you weren't a bad person if you went and did that back then, right? And they would come into Abercrombie and Fitch. They get all their gear. So they get shirt, pants, belt, yep. boots, hat, like all the things you need. And then you go upstairs. You pick out your rifle, your ammo, get and everything. Get in. fit for your rifle. Make sure it's zero to get you all squared away. I mean, true customer service. 
And it was full downtown. Boat. The, that's so great. And yeah. so you walk out, and then you go to Africa. Yeah, go to Africa, <gasps> go go slave bodies. Yeah, God. I was maybe born too late in America. Right. I don't know. Bring it back yeah. in New Hampshire. You know, nowadays we still do something similar. Um, you know, you come in and we have an actual training facility as well at Hudson. Yes. Farm. So, so you guys, and that's in New Jersey. So, yeah. so now. You have the rifle building place. What all else is at Griffin and Howe? What can you do? So rifle manufacturing, then gunsmithing. So we're not just building. We can also repair guns and, oh, yeah. and bend stocks for shotguns and all that good stuff. Um, we do gun sales as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just we're a gun shop as well. We cater to all clientele realistically, but we do you know still specialize in the hiring guns. Your yeah. Jay Purdy and Sons, your Holland Holland, some of your best lung. Uh, so double rifle. W.J. Jeffrey, we're a dealer for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, so That's what I have now. Yeah. Yep, in case strange. you didn't know. Absolutely. Um, so we get into that, and then we actually have the shooting academy as well. So it's sporting clays for shotgun. It's uh, rifle. It's handgun. Uh, and if you need something specific, hey, I'm going to shoot the best in the day, we do pheasant clinics. I want to shoot ducks. We do duck clinics, you know, for the shotgun side so, of the house. So it's for people getting into hunting, want a place where they can either learn and train or stay stay tuned up. Exactly. And so you said we can stay there if yeah. we come. So, so we have lodging. Yeah, we have uh, like 12 double twins, you know, uh, bedroom, private bathrooms. So you can stay there, especially guys that come from out of town. Yeah. You don't have to run in and run out. You don't have to worry about, uh, there's a helipad there. So if a guy wants to fly in it, you know, lucky enough to have a helicopter. You know, yeah. So I expect to see your helicopter flying at some point. Yeah, Jay's going to fly there. me there. That'd be awesome. There. That'd be yeah. good. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, we're all set up. Um, one stop shop. You know, they uh, the the club which also have operates Hudson Farm has a chef. So uh, we have the ability to uh, utilize their services, which they've kindly extended to us as a company. Uh, the actual private members club that's also there. Um, so okay, they, so you have a private member yeah. members club. So on like the country club for shooting, exactly. And, and they allow us to be on a property and use it, which we appreciate. Right, yeah. we have a 900 yard rifle range, which is the longest in New Jersey. Uh, and for New Jersey in general, it's 4,000 acres. Um, so that is not a lot of land if you live like out west, but on the northeast, 4,000 private acres is uh, quite a bit. Yeah, that's a lot of space. Sorry. So that's, so you have 900 meters? Yeah, 900 yard rifle range. 100 yards. Okay, yep. and 4,000. So yeah, that, 4, it is interesting. Yeah. You know, even me being in George, from Georgia, um, well, that's a big track there, 4,000 acres. But I can imagine in New Jersey where you guys are yes. not far from Philadelphia yeah, and so stuff I, like that. I believe it's the largest uh, privately owned property in the state and anything bigger than that state land itself. Um, so we're, 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 we're fortunate, awesome. I can say it that way. You know, that's um, a be- I mean, people don't think about it, but that's also a beautiful part of the country. It really is. So it's not the New Jersey people think of. It is, it's kind of in the, like, the little triangle between Pocono areas and PA. Um, kind yeah, because New Jersey, everyone New York. Yeah. thinks about is just right there next to New York exactly. City. Yeah, but yeah, a lot of the rest of New Jersey, especially the western yeah. parts. It's beautiful. a very wooded kind of semi-mountainous environment is what it is. Yeah, because you're right there on the edge of the Appalachians and everything. Exactly. Yeah. So the Appalachian Trail runs through a property at some point. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So we do a good job. Also have archery as well. So, I mean, we are truly back into the outdoor enthusiast's environment. It's not just shooting That's guns. So it's you want to have an experience with your kids or your family, something like that, come up as a family place. Oh, so it's a family place. Yeah. All right. So so Danny and I are coming with our ladies yep. in, in July. Yep. So uh so what's this Mike Murphy, extreme expert rifle challenge? Uh what what would you call this? A, academy teaching? Yeah. Like what what would Course. you say? Course. Oh, course is good yeah. so usually private instruction right usually a uh, minimum two hours uh for one-on-one instruction which is different from most of the industry in the country which is 
you know, structured group classes, yep. which I prefer, honestly, but some people, you know, like, I don't want to be around other people. Hey, I have one goal to achieve, which is I need to have to zero my own gun or I need data for my gun and I've got to hunt in like next week. Well, that makes sense. You if know? you can afford it and you don't want to go through a two exactly. or three day class. Yeah. And it's pro to the time. So some guys come as a group of four guys, just buddies hanging out. Um, and then I run an actual excursion course. Um, so we utilize three additional ranges we dropped in um, specifically for hunting prep. There's no more tables and benches. No more cover. Uh, well, we talked about it yesterday on the podcast. Yeah. Like if you just go and you go yeah. prone, you go to the range to prep for a hunt, it's go prone and on the bench. Yeah. So all you're the, limiting yourself. Yeah. All the targets are animal presentations that we use lifelike and life size uh, presentations for, with their vital zones being uh, steel, but painted the same color. So we'll be like, let's say, set in the deep woods, and the hardest part is finding your target. That'll be part of that. And you're then, right. Another reason to have yeah. good glass, good binos. Exactly. And because then, that's the way it goes a lot of yeah. times. Yeah. And then it's a matter of, hey, well, now let's use what you know to make that shot. Everything from lasing it just right, make sure you're not missing with the laser. You know, using your, do you have a pack with you? Use your pack. Use your sling. Why don't you have a sling with you, right? Is that sling work for you? Or is it something that's meant for a different setup altogether? Uh, and then we go to a big position up on the, uh, up on the top of the property. So we go to 1,200 yards. Um, but we have uh, a little bit higher winds. So in all the animal presentations, right, you know, six, 700 yards. We're not trying to shoot those distances, but if we can start to appreciate what happens at these distances, we'll be better off as a hunter. Yeah, well, you said something. at least something most of my clientele are hunters. So. Interesting to me that I think is probably a good rule of thumb yesterday, and I can't wait to come down and, and do a course with you um, in July, which is probably going to be super cool. My bald head's going to get burnt, yeah. but I'm going to learn some stuff. But I thought this was an interesting way to think about it. You're like, Work with your rifle, whatever range you can get proficient at. So what you said was like, you know, if you're proficient at 600 meters, if you can reliably shoot on target, good group, all that, then hunt at 300 meters. Yeah, like make that your half. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's like, and we talked about it last night. It's just a catch-all. It's not like a hard, fast rule, but like. I think that's wisdom. Because the good. question is ethics. The question is always is an ethical shot. Look, it's wherever you're most efficient at. If you can, if you engage targets a mile and a half and you're you're, you're just a bad dude, and you can do it all day long. So if you had to take a shot at 800, you probably see 800 yards differently than most people. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it yesterday, too, the confidence level in your stuff, and you spoke to it in this. Like, get a gun, lots of rounds through it, get your setup, whatever optic. Like, you know, there's it's it's easy with social media or marketing to like, oh, I want this and this newest thing and this, and this came out, this comes out in two months, I'm going to get that. But, yeah, having yeah. confidence in your setup when you go on a hunt, to me, is one of the, the best things you can do to have a successful, fun hunt. Like, being confident that you can make shots. Yeah. There's a guy I know, I think you know him too, uh, but we were having a conversation, so this guy shoots, you know, all the, the sexiest long-range rigs you can think of, all the military stuff, and he goes, when I hunt, I take, like, mile 3006, like, mountain rifle that weighs, like, you know, six pounds. I put a little, like, Boone and Crockett reticle on there, and I only shoot stuff, like, 200 yards. I know the guy can destroy stuff out at mile and a half, two miles. I've seen him do it. He doesn't doesn't need to. He's yeah. trying to hunt. He's trying to put meat in the freezer. Like at the end of the day, there has to be a practical solution here. Yeah, you know, like what we did, I appreciate because you can try different things. You can get out there and really get after it. You know, but for the guys, especially hunting like the United States, elk hunt, mule deer, like you got one tag, you got one chance. Don't blow it. It's not worth it, man. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. It was. If you're going to go to Africa right now, Africa was a great experience for us. It's very inexpensive to go to South Africa. It's target rich. It's right. it's not a lot of money to shoot a lot of animals. Um, it was interesting for us, too, as a group, taking a lot of different optics, rifles, a lot of different ideas of what we want to do. You had 300 Wind Mag. 
with a Swarovski. What is that? A five to twenty-five? Uh, that's a three and a half to eighteen. Three and a half to eighteen. You know, and Jason shooting a, a Winchester right. .30-06 with a two to eight on it, and um, everything in between. And you know, you're confident with it. You can make the shots. That's what it is. Look, there's a lot of good rifle builders out there. There's a lot of good companies that provide a lot of good support equipment, but it doesn't matter if you don't put timing on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Buying the most expensive, <laughs> nicest shit is yeah. not going to make you a good shot. I love you to buy my gun, but I'd more appreciate you shoot my gun if you're going to buy it. So, you know, whatever yeah. your system is, just you got to put time in. Yeah. And that's the biggest yeah. thing I stress to guys. It's like it's not about one crazy shot. And that's why we'll, if you do that enough, you also pick apart problems with certain gear. I bought stuff just yeah. because it had a certain dollar a, a dollar amount attached to it. It was a high dollar amount, so I go, well, it's good. And I thought it was good for three years, so I'll hop behind it, something different. I go, oh, yeah, I, I've been, I got had. Uh, you know, yeah, like, I mean, and it's the same. <laughs> like when we, when we talk about like every aspect of it, where we said yesterday, and you taught me this, and I should have known already. But um, you know, when we go to the range, if we're trying to get a good zero, I want to have heavy bags. I want to lay the gun in there. I want to have to manipulate the gun as little as possible to sh try to shoot a group. But, you know, you have heavy bags that you shoot from. Like, you don't want to carry that on a hunt. And in Africa, you had a super lightweight bag that's not what I want to use for zero on my gun. But when you're hunting and you can clip it on your belt, you clip it on your sling like you talked about, and you can be successful. You know, it gives you that little added advantage in the field when you got to make an awkward shot. Because as we know, like you go to Africa – very few of your shots. I mean, if you want to sit in a place all day and wait for something and shoot, like, whatever comes out, like, you can do that yeah. and be prone. But if you're after a specific animal or type of animal or, you know, maturity level or whatever, it's rare that you get the shot that you want. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, uh, you saved me with that bag a couple of times. So I, I went and bought them, and we just went to Wyoming to train up and do some engineering stuff. But also, for me, I was training up for my next hunt to Africa, and I bought... 20 different bags mm -hmm. from everybody I, I found in the industry, ordered them up, took them out there for everyone to use, and I've got two of those lightweight bags like yeah. you had from Small Arms Precision. Uh, I think it's uh, Short Action Short Precision. Action yeah. Precision. So I used those uh, and did the same thing. Like, I'm going to have that just like you had, a little carabiner clipped on. Yeah. I'm going to clip it on something. I'm going to have it with me. Because if it's heavy, I won't use it. And that's another thing. Like, you get all this equipment, but when you start – you know, like I'm not as young as I once was or as fit, and and I still do okay. But like when you got to hike up a mountain and it's nine thousand feet, like I'm not carrying shit that I don't have to take. Exactly. And so having lightweight stuff was important. Yeah, it's a big deal, you know. Um, and we got to put time in. At the end of the day, again, it's just a matter of I can tell you this best piece of gear, but you know now you'll train with it, you'll be even better off. You know? Yeah. If I mean the best yeah. piece of gear is the one you're going to use and have with you, and it'll help you. Yeah. Well, okay, so so people can go to is it griffinhow.com? What's the website? Griffinhow.com website just got a new website just got launched the other day. Um, nice. so that's good for us. That was a long time coming. Um yeah, so all the information's on there. There's a gun room right on there, so you can see we have used and new inventory. Uh we're a smaller dealer, right? We still don't have a big footprint, so we have like exclusive dealerships with certain companies. Yeah. You know, so like we have elite dealerships with Staccato and Nighthawk and instead of okay, just carrying so, a bunch of so handgun stuff and all, but shotgun hiring. same deal, you know, Beretta, Cesar Carini, uh B. Rosini. So it's not just a gun shop that has random guns. You know, it's the place if you're looking for something specific, and we may be able to custom order something for you now. As yeah, well. so yeah, because you sent me some double rifles when I was looking. You guys had right. inventory. Yeah. So we still really tailor the experience to the customers, not just come in, buy a gun, we take your money, you leave. We want to know if you had a good trip. We want to know if it works. We want to know what we can do better for you. And that's across the board. That's from gunsmithing to shock and instruction, rifle, handgun, archery. That's yeah. a whole nine yards, yeah. 
Oh, man, I can't wait to get down there. And and so people can go on the website too if they want to take a long range or a hunting class, you know, a course to yep. get tuned up for the rifle. They can do that. Yeah, we run seven days a week. Um, so call in, you know, if you want to book a lesson, we'll we'll figure out a time slot. We're booking relatively fast. I think I'm booked through like September already. Nice. Um, which means I'm actually booked through January because we haven't even hit the hunting prep guys yet. Uh. That are getting ready to go. So we run in full tilt. We do a lot of corporate and charity events, though, too. So at the same time, the farm does – the actual club that's there probably does over a million dollars in charities a year nice. for the county. Oh, just the county goes And there. then we still branch out to Wounded Warriors. We branch out to the Special Forces Charitable Trust and anything you can think of, and the members all sponsor that stuff, which is great. So oh, that's wonderful. You wind up meeting a lot of people, too, and that's part of the reason I'm where I'm at. It's just a member knew another member, knew another member. Knew Networking connections is great. Man. Hey, we got a guy, you know. Yeah. Well, man, um, thank you for coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having it me. Was, it was so wonderful meeting you. The hunt that we went on, I, I mean, I think we talked about it yesterday, but what a bond we all have now, and I hope we make that an annual thing. And Man, I wish you success. I can't wait to get down there and shoot with you. I'm glad yeah. you got to come build one of our guns. I appreciate that, man. I learned a lot yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like from the manufacturing side, a lot of information. Yeah, yeah, it's a different approach. Like we're doing our own thing, and 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 I love it. But I appreciate, you know, I I mean, I've devoted my entire life to to small arms and every aspect of it. And right now, I'm super into the hunting part of it. And um, so, man, I'm so glad that that we've connected and we got to share a great adventure. And I hope we make it an annual thing. And I can't wait to see you in July. Appreciate, man. man. Thanks for having me out. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Jay, thanks for all your input. Yes, sir. (laughs) 